2: c13 originals
0: if you have any tips as it pertains to this story please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com or our tip line 347-674-6980 we can ensure anonymity Chapter 39. Talk to Skulls.
3: Whenever possible, believe your own story. Theater types call it method acting. The theory is that if you want to truly play a character, you have to do it from the inside out. Don't start by walking and talking like the character. Think and feel like the character instead that way, the walking and talking come naturally. If you think and feel like Hamlet, you'll soon be talking to
0: Yorick Skull. When the story of the college admissions scandal broke, I wanted to learn as much as possible about William Rick Singer. Who was this ringleader of the largest ever college admissions conspiracy prosecuted by the U.S. Justice Department? I discovered Rick wrote a book in 2011 called Getting In. In the very first sentence, Singer writes, This book is full of secrets. In each chapter, Singer provides advice for prospective or current college students. And as I read it, it was hard not to feel like Singer was often writing about himself.
3: Whether you're using a legend to cover up your mistakes or owning up to them and folding them into your brand, you must believe absolutely in what you're doing. If you're pretending to be a sanitized version of yourself, think like that person. If you're presenting yourself as a reformed character who can show his or her scars with pride, think like that character. Be a method actor. If you do this, you'll be ready when an interviewer asks you an unexpected question. When the admissions office wants to follow up on just a few details. When a teacher needs to test you before writing a letter of recommendation. Whoever you are in your application, believe in that person and act accordingly. You'll be amazed at the conversations you can have with a skull.
0: As I read Singer's book, I began thinking about how much coverage this story has gotten from the celebrities involved, to the money which was exchanged, to the debates over the college admissions process. But I realized very little is known about Singer himself. My goal now is to better understand not just Rick the con man, but Rick the person. So I'm in Newport Beach, California, in front of a 5,000-square-foot Tuscan-style home. The front gate is open, and so is the door. The lights are on, too. Excuse me? Hello? Hello? And now, I'm standing inside of Rick Singer's house.
2: It's the home run of home runs. We help the wealthiest families in the U.S. get their kids into school. It's so hard for these kids to get into college and look what's going on behind the scenes. Dude, what do you think, I'm a moron? No, I'm not saying you're a moron. I got it, I got it. He
4: threw a basketball right at his face and hurt him. So I kind of knew that Coach Singer had a anger issue.
5: And I remember taking a double take and looking at the person and I'm going, wait a minute.
0: That's Ricky. I'm Andrew Jenks. This is Gangster Capitalism. Season one, The College Admissions Scandal. I went to Rick Singer's beachfront neighborhood, looking to speak with anybody that knew him. And as I walked by his house, I saw that it was open. Honestly, it feels a little weird being here, but I went in looking to get an idea of what a $25 million scam can buy you. The house was huge and there was a considerable amount of construction going on. It turns out that the five bedroom home which Singer bought in 2012 for $1.5 million, had just been sold for $2.5 million, all of which will go to the federal government. So I left and began knocking on some doors in the area. I thought maybe his neighbors would know a different side of Rick, different than what we've learned so far. Surprisingly, most were unaware that he had lived there. But then... I spoke to Daniel Darrow.
6: My grandson, one of them plays uh, high school basketball and the other one plays soccer. He tries to get them inspired to practice and to do well and things like that. And he'd tell me, but basically all I knew was, I, all I heard was he was doing good things, you know, helping kids with, in the inner city and and uh, building a basketball court for these kids and, you know, and the fact that he was going to do something with LeBron James and something with Kobe and uh, I heard Steve Nash came over to his house and, you yeah. know. I, I fr- originally heard that he was like a life coach, among among other things. He seemed like a really sharp guy and it seemed like he was all about doing good for people. Every time I talked to him, it was all about the good things that are happening and the good things he's doing. And I thought, how could one guy be doing all these things? I wasn't sure what to believe or, or what not to believe, but it sounded pretty pretty fascinating, and pretty fantastic what he was uh, apparently getting accomplished. So I always thought he was just a great guy. I really, I really liked the guy, you know? I was even thinking, When my uh, grandson gets of age, I was going to talk to him and say, give us some tips on how to get him recruited into college, yeah.
0: I couldn't get what Daniel said out of my mind. He described a neighbor who was not only nice, but one who specifically did a lot of good things for a lot of people. A neighbor who sounded like the polar opposite of the Rick Singer we thought we knew. It seemed like there was another side of Singer we haven't heard about. So I wanted to speak with more people who knew him better. We found a man named William Gorin, and he agreed to talk. William went to school with Rick from kindergarten to eighth grade in their hometown of Lincolnwood, Illinois.
2: I don't know if we ever said two words to each other one of the things i find really curious because i've now talked to a half a dozen different reporters one of the things i find really curious is why the people who knew him better i find it really curious why none of those people have been contacted i i find that very strange i i don't know what that says in terms of like what you're thinking about a backstory but uh I'm the one that keeps getting contacted, and as far as I know, I've yet to see any kind of story from one of these other individuals who knew them better than I did anywhere.
5: I I find that very strange.
0: For many weeks now, we've tried to connect with someone from Rick Singer's past who actually knew him well. We've gone through his old yearbooks and have connected with more than a dozen people, but most don't want to talk. They've told us they don't want to be affiliated with Rick. Several people, including one who went to elementary, middle, and high school with Singer, don't even remember him. At Niles West High, he played football for four years and freshman baseball. And his quote from his senior yearbook in 1978 reads, I would most like to be remembered for the outstanding personality I have been given and being able to get along with others. We got in contact with two people from his football team and they didn't remember him either. And then, just a few days ago, we found someone who does remember Rick Singer. I was
5: at the gym working out and I looked up and I saw him on the news and I remember taking a double take and then I can see it say William Singer I'm looking at the person I'm going wait a
0: minute that's Ricky This is Cheryl Levin describing a moment she says she'll never forget the moment when she realized that the mastermind of the biggest college admission scandal in U.S. history was one of her closest friends.
5: I have a cute picture of him and a bunch of our friends. And we're in, I want to say he's in third or fourth grade, and he's got a big smile on his face because he always had a big smile on his face and he was chubby. And I just, I look at that picture from time to time, and I say to myself, what happened to... My friend.
0: Cheryl and Rick grew up together in Lincolnwood, Illinois, a mostly affluent suburb just north of Chicago. Rick lived with his parents, Nick and Gwen, and his younger sister, Allison. They were good people. They still
5: are good people. They had good values. Everybody was welcome in their home. Gwen always supported him. And I could remember her always saying that Ricky can do anything he put his mind to. He was like, I don't want to say class clown, but he was like the happy guy. Everybody wanted to hang with Ricky because he was fun. And he always had a smile on his face. Everybody was equal with Ricky. No matter what group you were part of, he never excluded anybody. He like would rally the troops all together. Ricky could sell swampland to anybody. You know, we used to joke about it. He was the salesman. He was the gift of gab. You know, and even when he would talk about things, he would embellish things. And his good friends knew that he was embellishing, but that was just part of his personality, his salesmanship. Rick lived in East Lincolnwood, but Ricky didn't grow up in a wealthy home. He grew up in a townhouse, but surrounded by a lot of wealthy people. Imagine a row house, like a three-bedroom house with a small kitchen and family room, dining room, all combined, versus houses that would be three to 4,000 square feet surrounding them. I know that it was hard for Ricky. All of his group of friends were all very wealthy, and he wasn't. And in the summers, a lot of our friends would go away to summer camps. And I guess that was really a sign in Lincolnwood of the wealth versus going to local day camps. And I remember... Ricky always saying, that's not going to be me. I'm going to make it. But Ricky and I were always around over the summers. We both went to the day camp. Ricky was always very overweight. They used to call him as a kid fat man singer. And I can remember him making his mind up to losing weight. His nickname for me was Silves, S-I-L-V-S, because my maiden name was Silver. And he used to say, Silves, I'm going to be skinny. You watch me. We would run every day around the park. And when Ricky started running, I remember he got one of those suits you would wear so you would sweat. He was aggressive. He would say, come on. Let's run another mile. You can do better. You can do more. And he lived on bags of peanuts and raisins. And little by little, Ricky took off the weight. And he literally took off 75 pounds. And when everybody came back from the summer, Ricky was, like, in shape. He went from being totally overweight to being like with a six pack and working out every day and running. I'll never forget it. Once Ricky made the decision that something was gonna change, it changed. But Ricky was always worried where he was gonna go to school and how things were gonna get paid for. And we went to college together. We went to University of Arizona. And he would say to me, Silves, I'm not going to end up in a townhouse. You see that house? That's going to be the kind of house I would have. That's how he focused. He focused on what he saw others had that he didn't have, that he wanted.
0: But Rick had to leave the University of Arizona. Cheryl said she thought it was because he struggled to afford tuition. So over the next several years, he bounced around a few other small schools and ended up at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. He played varsity basketball and baseball there and got his degree in 1986, eight years after he and Cheryl graduated high school. And then he moved to Sacramento, California.
5: Ricky was really the only one to move away. Everyone came back home, except for Ricky. I think there was a part of Ricky that felt that there was nothing for him to come back to. He needed to walk away from Lincolnwood so he could make his mark. He could become the Ricky singer he wanted to be, not Fat Man singer that grew up as like the class clown or you know everybody's buddy he could start over and that's exactly what he did
7: selling a little or a lot Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast.
1: Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Chapter 47. Follow your passion.
3: In the absolute worst-case scenario... You might do your regular semester gut check and discover that your brand no longer has anything to do with your passion. Now what? Maybe you went into college a future farmer of America, and now you want to be a French mime. You've invested years in presenting yourself as God's gift to animal husbandry, and now your soul cries out for grease paint and white gloves. Do you follow your brand, which has gotten you this far? Or do you throw caution to the winds and hop on the next cheap flight to Paris? Examine yourself carefully. Make sure this is truly your passion. Then, if you're sure about this change, however drastic, here's what you do. Chuck your brand. Brands can be replaced. Brands can be rebuilt. Brands can be changed. IBM used to sell typewriters. Now they build supercomputers. The Wright brothers sold bicycles before inventing the airplane. The jeweler Tiffany and company originally sold stationery. It's never too late to rebrand. The tools that built your brand can change it or build you a new one. Don't be afraid to evolve or start over. You did it once. You can do it again. Better a happy mime than a miserable hog farmer.
0: Rick Singer graduated college at 26 years old with a major in physical education. And then, in 1988, he took a job as the varsity basketball coach at Encina High School in Sacramento, California.
4: You're either in his circle or out of his circle, and I was on his team.
0: That's Jeff Shumway. Jeff was the starting point guard for Encina High and he remembers meeting his coach for the first time.
4: I will never forget it. I was behind my high school during the summer playing basketball by myself in the hopes of seeing my new basketball coach just to notice that I was so dedicated to basketball that I was back there by myself playing. And I figured if he saw me, he would know how much basketball meant to me. And sure enough, Coach Singer came and spoke to me, asked me what I was doing. I wanted him to know that I wouldn't take a moment off, you know, because that's what Coach Singer wanted. He knew that our team was a mediocre team, and he wasn't going to accept being mediocre. He did not like losing, I can tell you that. Coach Singer was known for when we would lose, he would run us and run us and run us and run us. And and, um, I was motivated by that. What he stood for, what I thought, back in 1988, was the underdog. Because we were the underdog. He believed in us so much that we really did not want to let him down. Coach Singer was heartbeat of our team. He'd be bumping into you. He'd be wrapping his arms around you. He'd be hugging you. He'd be smiling. Um, but then he'd be cussing. You know, Coach Singer, he, he could switch it up on you real quick. I remember there's a guy named David Augustine. He threw a basketball right at his face and hurt him. I mean, it drove David right in the face. I mean, everyone just stopped in silence, you know? So I kind of knew that Coach Singer had an anger issue. Fucking Shumway. Shoot, fucking Shumway. You know what I mean? He used to love to say the F-bomb. And the thing is, a lot of the players' parents didn't like that. The administration at the high school didn't like that. The principal would come up to me during the game when I was on the bench and whisper to me, saying, hey, you need to go to Coach Singer. You need to tell him to calm down. Well, I'd go to Coach Singer and tell him to calm down, and he he would tell me, fuck them. I'm going to do what I want to do. I was told during one of our last games, this will be his final warning. And I would actually kind of plead with Coach Singer. Coach, please, calm down. They're going to fire you. Please. It wouldn't matter whatsoever what the principal said. Coach Singer would continue coaching the exact same way that he wanted to coach. I mean, you were going to change Coach Singer. Coach Singer was the way Coach Singer was going to be. He didn't give a hoot about anyone above him. The chain of command, that's not something that he was... Are they really concerned about, you know? We cared about one thing or one thing only and that was winning.
0: Rick Singer was fired from Encina High School before the final game of his first and only season there. I'll never
4: forget that year that
2: I had with Coach Singer.
4: There's only so many people in your life that you can name that aren't your family that will always stand out. And Coach Singer's one of those unique individuals. He's like my father figure. I looked up to him. You know, I, I, the truth is, uh, I loved the guy. I loved him. And uh, I loved him, and I would have done anything for him.
0: After his coaching stint, Singer changed course. He took a job at the Money Store in Sacramento, selling home equity loans. Then, after that... He worked for a telemarketing company. And then he made another career shift. He began a college admissions consultation business called Future Stars.
2: When I initially saw this story break on the news, I saw Rick Singer and I was like, oh my God, I know that guy.
0: That's the voice of someone who reached out to us via our tip line. We'll call him David. David is now a doctor in Texas, but he grew up in Sacramento. And he also remembers the first time he met Rick Singer.
2: We were in a junior high school library in Sacramento at this back to school night meeting. And Rick came and gave a presentation. He was fit. He was energetic, he was confident. Again, I was a, a kid at the time, junior high, but I remember he just looked smart. and whatever this guy's selling, it's probably gonna be good and end up you know working out. I remember listening to him pitch this whole comprehensive concept where like, if you hire him, He'll be your personal one-on-one advisor to shepherd you and your family through the whole complicated process of college admissions. My mom was just glued to his presentation, as were a lot of other moms. And she got up and went right up to him and said, I need you to help make sure that my son is optimized. I think my mom paid about $2,500. And for her, that's a huge sum. But she didn't think twice about it. And she used her tax refund to pay for it um, to the detriment of like other things around the house because she thought, man, education is that important. When it came to school, she'd pay anything. So she paid him just to be a consultant. He would show up at my house and he would just sit there and watch me do practice SAT tests. And then he would grade the bubble tests He would read your essays and help edit them. At the time, we typed our college applications. So he would bring a typewriter and help you type up your college applications to look clean. He'd review your resume activities and give you suggestions on things you could do to like make yourself look better. He even said that, you know, he knew some folks, Um, not that he would pull strings to do anything, but just help, you know, get your application to the right place. There was something about his personality. He had this charisma. This energy, this confidence, he's crisp when he speaks, and he just talked like a pro. And I'm like, this guy knows what he's doing. Like, he smells like success. The car, the the, the clothes, the, the demeanor. I was like, yeah, I don't want to disappoint that guy. I actually did really well in school. I was an excellent student. As the years went by, he said, you know, I can use you to help tutor these other kids if you want to make some money. And I said, well, sure. And it got to the point where once I was 16, I was tutoring students of his almost every single day. So the better I was doing in helping these kids be successful in school, the easier it would be for him to market his business to other parents
0: one of Singer's clients was the son of a wealthy hedge fund manager, and Singer had David tutor him.
2: This kid, you know, liked to play around, smoked a lot of pot, didn't really pay a lot of attention in school, wasn't a great student. And I thought he really just wanted me to get in there and motivate this kid, work with him, what I've been doing with everybody else. So I get in there, and I'm talking to him, and, and the kid needs a lot of work. And I'm tutoring him in just about every subject. And he was really struggling in writing this one particular essay for American history. He wanted me to kind of write it for him. And I'm like, no, sorry, brother, I'm not going to do that. And then I got a call from Rick. And he was just kind of urging me to put a little bit more of myself into writing that paper for him than in pushing him to write it on his own and kind of pitched it as as being more of a headache for me if I do it the other way, so if I just write it for him, we can move on, it'll be easy. I still had this kid write his own paper, but I remember just kind of thinking to myself at the time, I'm like, huh, it's kind of odd that he would reach out and ask me to do that.
0: David says he remembers something else about Singer that gave him pause.
2: I did that with him for about a year, until I realized that he would charge the families I found out later $50 cash per hour for me, and he would give me 20 and keep 30 He liked nice things. He liked to dress well. He drove a nice car. I would always see him at the country club. I would always see him at other places where families who had money would be. Somehow he found his way into that upper social class, within Sacramento society. College admissions advising is an area where you have a relatively vulnerable population willing to spend just about whatever it takes. So you have a lot of folks who are really wealthy who are participating in this. I bet you there are some folks that weren't that really leveraged a lot to pay him what he asked for to make this happen. Families to whom that matters are going to be willing to pay whatever it takes because they live under the belief and the assumption that in the United States if you get into the right school your life is set that's all we need to do you get in the right school you meet the right people in college you get the right jobs you're going to do okay and i think a lot of people are realizing today that that's kind of a myth that instead of your life being set you come out of those schools with a whole hell of a lot of student debt. You may or may not have the job you want, and your life is not set, but they think that's some kind of finish line, and they're willing to pay whatever it takes. And so I think potentially, and one theory I have, is that he started with the right intentions from the right place. When he identified how desperate this population was, And what they were willing to do to help their children succeed, which I think most good parents are like this. He probably realized that he had an opportunity to charge just about whatever he wanted. And if he could promise more than just good advice and helping you through tutoring and things like that, like he started to do later, he could probably charge even more to a population that was relatively vulnerable that way.
0: Chapter 50, Remember the Elevator.
3: Your brand can take you to places you've never dreamed. Make sure you bring your brand there with you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, remember your elevator pitch. When you present yourself to new people, when you strive for new achievements, remember that pitch. Everything you do supports that pitch. Even if the pitch changes, even if you chuck it and replace it with a new one, whatever the pitch is now, remember it and support it. Who are you? You're an aspiring librarian who quotes Mel Brooks and Monty Python. You're a champion wrestler who overcame cancer. You're a budding tech entrepreneur who writes songs for the ukulele. You're a human rights activist who can do calculus in her head. That's who you are. That's what you're selling. Remember your pitch. When you're exhausted from trying to explain yourself to a world that wasn't made for people like you, remember your pitch. You are a vibrant and complex human being. And your pitch is what gets you in the door to live like it. For a long
5: time, he made
3: it the right way.
5: He just wasn't satisfied that that was big enough.
0: That's Cheryl Levin again. You met her earlier in this episode. Cheryl was one of Rick Singer's best friends from growing up in Lincolnwood, Illinois.
5: And I think living in California, around Hollywood or around some of the people that he interacted with, egos got away. And Ricky knew how to compete with egos. It was part of his personality that drove him. He was competitive in that way. When he would talk to people, he always felt he had to be on. He always had to be on stage, like he was commanding a performance for anybody. But I don't believe Ricky would ever hurt any of his people that he knew or that he grew up with. Like I don't believe Ricky would have ever done anything like that to me not not me because of our history I don't think he respected those parents how he created the situation where people became athletes that weren't athletes that's not the Ricky I know that's something that evolved as this scheme got ahead of him Because the Ricky I knew was all about work hard and be the athlete and see what you can achieve. It's the guy I was running the miles with. It was the guy who was losing the weight and carrying bags of peanuts and raisins around and determining to make it. Somewhere along the line, he got lost. I think from afar, You know, I think he should know that I'm sorry for him, but if I were able to talk to Ricky, I would say why. I need to understand why you hurt the people who have loved you and supported you and have respected you and watched you over the years accomplish so much. How could you do this? What were you thinking? And why would you hurt the system that you so believed in? You believed in all of these things, and that's why you became a coach. And that's why you became a counselor. How could you take advantage of that system and betray it? Just for money? Tell me it was more than money. I need him to tell me why. It blows me away. To think that my friend did this. Shame on him. Even though I I think at at heart he's a good person. He's a loving father. He's a loving son. Loving brother. And I feel for the people that he hurt. Because he hurt a lot of people. Sorry doesn't take it back. I think it fed his ego. And Ricky in his own way, needed to have his ego. He needed attention. I think when this happened, once he knew he could do it, he felt he could do it again. And that there was nothing was going to stop him. Not that he was realizing what he was doing was illegal, because I'm sure he did realize that. But I think he was driven internally to make money. He just wanted to live a life that he never lived when he was younger. And he always wanted to have more. He wanted to have that million-dollar home. Ricky always bragged about what he had or how much his business was doing and how well he was doing. He needed to tell you so that everyone knew. When I talked to him last, all he could do was tell me how well he was doing and how much his company was gonna be doing and he was getting a you know, an influx of cash coming in, people are buying in, he's doing so well. Silks, you'd be proud of me. You know, you can't imagine things are just going so great. He found a niche and then he wanted to make more money and I think he became so aggressive and and he became so focused on that. He lost sight of the true vision the guy who wrote the book, or the guy who was the basketball coach, or the guy who played Division Three basketball. In order for him to fulfill a dream like that, he had to start over and recreate himself. And I think that's what he did. Only he lost sight of what the real vision should be. I think in the end, I think Ricky always knew he was going to get caught. And he's lived as long as he can live the life he could live. Because he never admitted when he couldn't do something. And he never admitted when he failed at something. And I don't think this is any different. By turning in all those other people, it's just another way of saying he really didn't fail. They all failed too.
0: We would like to hear from you, the listeners. If you know anyone who has cheated, has been accepted into college through illegal means, or has a story to tell about this scandal, please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com. That's tips at gangstercapitalism.com. Or our tip line, 347-674-6980. We can ensure anonymity. Gangster Capitalism is a production of C-13 Originals. It's written and directed by me, Andrew Jenks, and Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me, Chris Corcoran, and Zach Levitt. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Perry Crowell, and Terrence Malingone. Editing by Perry Crowell and Zach Levitt. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Artwork and design is by Kurt Courtney. Original score is by Joel Goodman. And the theme song is Your Sins Will Find You Out by Eli Paperboy Reed. For more information, go to gangstercapitalism.com and follow us on Instagram at gangstercapitalism or on Twitter at gangstercapital. You can always follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. Thanks for listening to episode four of Gangster Capitalism.